We've been looking at the instructions that Paul wrote to Timothy related to setting things in the proper order in this young church at Ephesus. How things ought to be conducted, how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. The last time we saw that Paul emphasized the importance of prayer in the public gathering of his people. He said it was of first importance that prayer be made for all people. And the reason that he gave for that, for praying for all people, was that Christ died for all people. Not any select group or nationality, but all people. But Paul did particularly point out that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority. And his reason for that was that Christians might be able to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In verse 8, he brings out that he's directing this exhortation, this exhortation to pray primarily to the men of the church. So if you're with me here in 1 Timothy, in chapter 2, we'll begin reading with verse 8, and then read through verse 15. Why don't we stand as we read the scriptures here? Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So he goes from this exhortation to prayer, which he directed primarily to the men of the church, to some exhortations primarily directed toward the women of the church. Verses 9 and 10 deal with women's dress and their deeds. Verses 11 and, verses 11 and 12 with a woman's demeanor and deportment in the Christian assembly. 13 and 14 give Paul's theological foundation for the position that he's taking. And 15 is somewhat of a summary statement. We won't get that far this morning. So we'll start in here with what he says related to women's dress or adornment. The idea of the first sentence is that women should adorn themselves with adorning attire. That is, they should dress in a respectable and proper manner. That would be to dress with modesty, not vanity not wearing showy or flashy or very costly apparel. They should avoid dressing in ways, <clears throat> in ways that are immodest or provocative. This may have been a particular problem there at Ephesus because Ephesus was known for its fertility cults and temple prostitutes. As far as the gold and pearls and costly garments, there were apparently some people in the church at Ephesus who uh, had some money. They were wealthy. Uh, you can see that if you turn just quickly back to chapter 6 and verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So not to be conceited, and that 
conceit can come across in areas of the way you address in an assembly. Uh, so Christian women should avoid ostentatious adornment, especially when they're gathering together in the fellowship and the assembly of the saints. So we might ask our questions. Somebody here this morning might be sitting here with braided hair. Uh, is it wrong to braid your hair? Or for that matter, to wear some gold or pearls or costly garments. I mean, I've got a little gold on this morning. Probably a number of you do too. Uh, well, certainly there are cultural considerations that come into play here. And I think in that culture, some of the things he were mentioning probably pointed to a lifestyle that he said would not uh, be the type of thing that you would want uh, the people around you to consider Christians to be like. Uh, so cultural consider considerations come in. And, uh, I mean, for, uh, for instance, the clothes that we wear here in America uh, would be judged quite expensive in other cultures. So you have these principles of modesty and seeking to avoid excess, which are valid across cultures, cultures and centuries. They're, they're valid throughout our time here on earth. But you have particular prohibitions of things like braids or gold or pearls that are somewhat uh, determined by the culture that you're in. Um, one commentator put it this way, Paul does not forbid all ornament, but only the excess, which, which is a mark of frivolity and the love of display and awakens impure passions. So things like jewelry and hairstyles are somewhat culturally determined. We, I think we all realize that. And I don't think Paul would say that these things in moderation are always sinful, but I do think He's wanting to emphasize that a Christian woman actually has much better things with which to adorn herself and beautify herself. Good works are the best adornment for a woman making a claim to godliness. I think that's the real emphasis of what he's, he's presenting here. You see that in verse 10, but rather by means of good works as befits a woman making a claim to godliness. That's the great adornment. A discreet self-restraint, a humble willingness to serve, a holy walk, a reputation for good works. These are the things that the Bible teaches give a radiance and a beauty to women that no outward apparel or adornment can provide. Paul enumerates some of these things he considers to be good works uh, for Christians later on in chapter 5. So let's turn over there uh, quickly. Chapter 5 and verse 10. This section is referring to widows that the church should take care of, but it, <clears throat> it does show the type of good works that Paul would have been thinking of in the first century. So chapter 5, verse 10, speaking of these uh, widows, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So those are the type of things that Paul is thinking of. You see this again in 1 Peter. So let's turn there, 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> And uh, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Speaking of uh, women here and wives. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, 
but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So a gentle and quiet spirit along with submissiveness is what uh, Paul considered the great adornment of uh, women, uh, not the external things. So that brings us up to what Paul brings up next. Back, If you turn back to 1 Timothy in verse 11 and 12, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So again, we're dealing with something here that I think is partially cultural, but it's coupled with some transcultural truths. Of course, the whole idea of the area of submissiveness is something that's very controversial in our day and age, especially that this concept of submission in the home and in the church. It's something that some people today find odious. I have to say that when I spoke on this section 25 years ago, I presented the material differently than I plan to today. <clears throat> That's because I've become aware of how the teachings on submission and headship have been abused when taken out of the context of the overall teaching of the Bible. It's vitally important in a section like this that we use all the Word of God, not just teach a small part especially not a small part that people have used to control and abuse others. And there's no question that people have used and misused some of the sections of Scripture which deal with male-female relationships in ways that have brought abuse to women and have caused incredible harm, harm to women and harm to the cause of Christ. And that really has not ceased. Even today, it's estimated that one in five women experience some form of abuse, either emotional or physical, here in America. And you go to other countries, it's much worse. You get to some of the Islamic countries. But we're talking particularly here related to Christianity. Sometimes this abuse is exercised because people think that the Bible supposedly teaches male dominance and superiority. I hope to show that biblical submission is not based on superiority, rather it's based on love. Before there can be any right understanding of verses like the ones we're looking at this morning, we must have a clear understanding of some, uh, some essential biblical truths which will serve as the foundation for properly understanding these verses. For instance, we must be clear that the Bible teaches the dignity of womanhood, the equality before God of men and women, and the unity of all Christian believers, male and female, as fellow members of God's family and Christ's body. I mean, those are foundational. Those three principles have to be kept in mind. Dignity, equality, unity. And on an even more basic level, we must have an understanding of the love relationship and authority structure and authority uh, as it's presented to us in the persons of the Trinity. See, the world doesn't have this concept at all. Consequently, they don't understand. Uh, they don't have a proper view of submission. 
but we have to start at the very basic place, which has to do with our understanding of who God is and the relationships in the Trinity, where there are three persons in unity, equality, and mutual dignity, yet with differing primary functions. So that's where we want to start this morning. We're just going to lay the very foundational things to try to understand these verses. If you don't, like I said, if you take a small portion of Scripture, it can easily be misunderstood and misused. So within the Trinity, the love relationship found among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see an authority structure where the Son submits to the Father, but is nevertheless equal to the Father. While Christ was here on earth, he repeatedly emphasized that he was always doing what he did in subjection to the Father. Nevertheless, he also stressed his oneness with the Father and his delight to do the Father's will. What this means is that there can be an authority structure that is not in the least bit demeaning or detrimental to the one in subjection. You see that? It's, it's presented to us as a very foundational understanding of relationships because they're there in the Trinity. I'm going to repeat that. There can be a, an authority structure that is not in the least bit demeaning or detrimental to the one in subjection. In other words, there can be authority without inferiority. Unfortunately, authority is not usually exercised or perceived this way in the world. Submission simply becomes another word for inferiority. And because of that, often exploitation and oppression are the result. Anyone who's familiar with the history of humanity is aware that authority is very often abused especially in male-female relationships. In fact, this is exactly what is predicted by God when Adam and Eve turned from him. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll just kind of jump into the middle of the account here of what happened after the fall. God speaking to the woman right after the fall. He says in verse 16, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you, you shall bring forth children. And here's the key phrase. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now I believe God is saying that sin has brought a real distortion. Because of the fall, sin has brought a real distortion into the male-female relationship. Where the woman desires to be in prominence over the man, and the man seeks to rule over the woman. You might say, well, how do you get that out of that verse? Well, it's, the key word there is desire. Yet your desire shall be for your husband. That just sounds like you just want to be with your husband, but that's not what this is saying. And you can see that if you look over to chapter 4, verse 7, because the same word is used here, and it shows how, how the writer was using it. This is when, after Cain is, or when Cain is... Uh, having this uh, situation with his brother. And uh, then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's the same word here that, this word desire. And the idea is sin is trying to 
rule over you. It's trying to master you, but you have to master it. And what, uh, if you take that concept back into the verse we're looking at, your desire, this woman, the woman's desire, is to rule over her husband, and yet he shall rule over you. In other words, you have this battle going on where the woman desires to be in prominence over the man and the man seeks to rule over the woman. This verse in Genesis should never be taken as something God viewed as right and good. Rather, what God is saying is that there will be a power struggle between men and women because of sin, because of the fall, and their selfishness that came in, and this struggle will go on throughout history. It'll even become the norm of society. But the really important thing to get a hold of here in relationship to our understanding of Christianity is that in Christ there can be substantial healing of this struggle of the sexes and essential harmony can be restored. And that Harmony, the two places in which we should see that most evident is in Christian marriage and in Christian gatherings, in other words, the church. What we're saying is that the gospel of Christ puts in motion a reversal of the fall, a reversal of this attitude of selfishness between the sexes. The gospel reverses that. So, what about those passages in Paul's letter that some people think put women in a bad light? Let's turn back to 1 Timothy. Paul says, Let woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And you see this, this isn't the only time Paul taught this. Um, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 14. And verse 34, 14:34. Let the woman keep silent, let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. Now Paul is dealing with a situation of trying to keep order in the somewhat disorderly situation here, and it's not the first time he talked about keeping silent. If you see up in verse 28, he talks about those speaking in tongues. There's certain situations where they need to keep silent. silent. Uh, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. And then a little later on, they're talking about the prophets, some of these prophecies that were coming forth. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. So you got this idea of keeping silent here already related to the order that was uh, needed to be restored, I think, in, in Corinth. But he does say that women should keep silent in the churches. So that sounds pretty clear, absolute. Women just don't speak in the churches. But, again, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. So if you turn back to chapter 11, chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, you see that uh, this uh, was not as absolute as it sounded there in uh, chapter 14. So 11.2, now I praise you because, uh, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man 
and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesy, prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. She is one and same with, with her whose head is shaved. But the point we want to get a look at here is in 5, talks about women praying and prophesying. Well, that obviously is speaking in some manner, praying and prophesying. So it's not near as absolute as uh, Paul presents, or as it sounds like he presents back in, in uh, chapter 14. We won't go into this section today, but I think uh, largely he's again talking about this area of authority uh, when he's talking about having head covering and all that type of thing in this section. So the point is is that um, we have to always compare Scripture with Scripture. And I think we can surmise from what is presented here that the silence Paul was talking about was not, an abs- not nearly as absolute as it first sounds uh, since women could pray and prophesy. The issue had to do with maintaining order and the proper acknowledgement of, of authority in the church. In other words, a certain kind of speech was what Paul was seeking to curtail in the situations that he was, he was uh, speaking into. One of the questions that I think it would be good to ask ourselves as we read this section is why was it necessary for Paul to issue this directive to the church at Corinth and to the church at Ephesus? And I think that it's very probable that some women were using their newfound freedom in Christ in ways that denied the basic authority structure and gender roles God had established. In other words, there was a misunderstanding or a misuse by some, some women in those situations of their new covenant spirit giftedness. What am I talking about? Well, I think if we turn back to Acts chapter 2, you'll see what I'm saying. We have the account here of the day of Pentecost uh, in chapter 2, but um, prior to that, we see that there were 120 people gathered together in the upper room. And those 120 people considered of, uh, consisted of both men and women. You see that in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1 talks about some of the women that were there uh, in this group of 120 people. And it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see that in chapter 2, verse 5. So this 120, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Paul then explains what was happening, what was taking place to the people around that saw these 120 people uh, being who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he explains this in terms of a prophecy from Joel, which says that both your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Let's, let's just look at it here. Verse 17 of chapter 2. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. In other words, he's explaining to the people that were seeing this event. This is exactly what Joel prophesied, that your sons and your daughters would prophesy. And your young men would see visions, and your old men would dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour forth 
of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So I think it's 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 emphasizing that God was outpour, outpouring his spirit upon both men and women. So from the very beginning of the New Testament church, both men and women were equally endowed with power to speak of the mighty deeds of God. That's what was taking place. Uh, if you look up at uh, chapter 11, or, uh, chap- uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, says what they were speaking about in, in, as they were speaking in tongues here. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So that was the outpouring of the Spirit there on the day of Pentecost. And this coupled with the New Testament teaching that uh, comes up in a number of places, especially from Paul, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, but all were one in Christ. You take those together and you can see how some were thinking that this erases or does away with the authority structure or any gender distinctions. Uh, you know this there in Galatians where Paul uses this uh, phrase about neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. A lot of commentators think that was actually a baptismal formula that was repeated at, at the baptism of, of uh, men and women in the early church. So this would have been a common teaching. But it was easy for that to be misunderstood. And so Paul saw this uh, misunderstanding as going against God's created design for men and women. And he also saw it as hindering the propagation of the gospel. Why would that be? Well, it caused uh, unnecessary difficulties in evangelism uh, in the culture of that day. And this was something that Paul was always concerned about, the advancement of, of the gospel. That was always his priority. Um, maybe just over to uh, Titus real quickly here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, again speaking to the women of the church, that they should be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. One commentator put it this way, there, that is, Christian women's new freedom in Christ was causing cultural, theological, and evangelistic problems. This new freedom, this new empowerment in Christ was certainly a wonderful thing for women in the early church. It must have seemed that they had entered into a whole new realm of existence, which in fact they had. This new day for women actually began during the time of Jesus' Christ's own ministry. And uh, I want to spend some time on that because I often I don't think we realize how revolutionary Christ's teachings and actions were toward women in the Jewish culture of the first century, especially how it contrasted with the attitudes that were prevalent even amongst the rabbis of that time. So I want to spend some time on this um, because I think it's relevant to our understanding of the verses that we're looking at in terms of, of women in the church. So for the rest of our time here this morning, that's what I'd like to do, just examine the subject of how Christ interacted with women. And I hope this will help us to put Paul's teaching in the proper perspective when I speak the next time. So here we, we just want to spend a few minutes here uh, looking at Christ's attitude towards women. Um, 
And there's a book entitled The Jesus I Never Knew by a man named Philip Yancey. And he wrote this in that book. Consider Jesus' attitude towards women. In those days, every synagogue service, Jewish men would pray something along the lines of, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Women sat in a separate section, were not counted in quorums, were rarely taught the Torah. In social life, few women could talk to men outside their own families, and women were not to touch, were to touch no man but their spouse. Yet Jesus associated freely with women and taught them as his disciples. A prostitute's anointing he accepted with gratitude. Women traveled with his bands of followers, no doubt stirring up much gossip. And he goes on from there. But I just want to examine some of these areas uh, that we see in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, that sometimes I think we can overread and or read over and not realize how uh, really uh, revolutionary and uh, different what Jesus was doing than what was common at the time. So let's consider some scriptures here. First of all, Jesus talked openly, both publicly and privately, with women, which was something unusual in Jewish society. Again, the rabbis taught, he who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. Talking with a woman in public. But for us, Consider the account of Jesus with the woman at the well. This would have been a situation particularly frowned upon. Uh, first of all, she was a Samaritan. More importantly, she was a woman. You're not supposed to do that out in public, talk with a woman, not part of your family. Uh, even worse, she was probably coming to the well by herself at this time of day because of who she was a woman with a bad reputation. She couldn't come out when the other women came out to the well. So let's look at John chapter 4 here just briefly because there's one little phrase that's easy to read over and we don't want to miss it in relationship to what we're thinking about today. You know the account, but let's just jump in right uh, at verse 27. John chapter 4 Verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came. They'd been away getting some food and things, and they came back, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. It was just incredible to them that he was doing this, speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Jesus amazed them by the way he treated this woman. And I think this was a, uh, something that continued to amaze his disciples. They were amazed at the way he interacted with women. In this account, he's actually carrying on one of the longest recorded conversations in the gospel, and it's with a woman who had just come for some water. I think we can hardly realize how stunned the woman herself would have been that he talked with her like this. Here was the Jewish Messiah talking with her and offering living water to her. So again, I say this whole thing must have stunned the disciples because Jesus treated women so differently than what they were used to seeing in that culture. Again and again we see him speaking freely with women and healing them and allowing them to touch him and bringing their children to him. Now, on many occasions we see women serving him. Now you might say, well, that sounds like, that doesn't sound too radical. Well, it actually was. Such service was not usual. Well, it was not unusual, let me say, in a Jewish family situation but it was very unusual outside of that 
situation. In other words, it, it, it's one thing for you to, a woman to serve in her family. It's another to just serve a man uh, out in public. Very unusual. Um, again, the Jewish rabbis strongly disapproved of women even serving them at tables. Jesus taught women and assumed that women as well as men could talk and reason about theological things. Well, that doesn't seem radical to us, but it was very radical back then that he would talk with them and that they could actually talk with him about theological things. The account of his time with Martha and Mary brings this out clearly. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Verse 39. Talks about Martha welcoming, welcoming Jesus into her home. And she had a sister called Mary. And moreover, Mary was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. Now, we don't put a lot of emphasis on that part right there. We're thinking about, you know, um, Martha serving, Mary listening. But this thing of being seated at his feet, uh, that's kind of a phrase that meant something back in that society. Um, Paul talked about uh, learning from Gamaliel, see, seating, sitting at his feet of Gamaliel. In other words, that was a position of a, a learner, a disciple, who wanted to learn from the teacher, from the master. Well, that's what Mary was doing here. Um, this, again, was very unusual for that day and age when men were the ones who were supposed to learn from the rabbi. In the uh, Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish laws and tradition, one rabbi declared, there is no wisdom in a woman except with the distaff which has to do with making clothing and that type of thing. In other words, women might have some wisdom in uh, textiles, but not in theological things. There is no wisdom in a woman except with the distaff. Another comment uh, by a rabbi, it's better that the words of the law should be burned uh, than that they should be given to a woman. Very, very demeaning, very... Uh, uh, superior, uh, very superior attitude in the, in the, these rabbis. Uh, but Jesus was constantly breaking down that type of barrier, teaching women, taking them aside, letting them learn from him. So um, that comes out, I think, clearly in this account of Martha and Mary. Shouldn't get too down on Martha, though, because she... She carries on a very theological discussion with Christ right after this and uh, makes a testimony that's equal with that of Peter uh, in terms of seeing who Christ was and the significance of his life. Um, so, breaking down barriers. Now here's, I think, one of the most amazing things. Jesus accepted monetary support and other help from women and allowed them to travel along with his band of disciples. We sometimes miss this as we read over, but let's, let's turn to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And it came about soon afterwards that he began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and teaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Well, that, we know that they traveled with him a lot, but, but get this. And also some women. Now, he's going from one city to another, one village to another. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and others. 
and many others, not just others, many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So these women were traveling along with Jesus, many of them, and they were helping support this band of disciples out of their private means. Um, I can't help but think this was somewhat scandalous. At the time of the crucifixion, we're told that some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were there also. Around the cross there, there were many women, many other women who had been following along from when he was in Galilee. So this is uh, amazing. Jesus never stereotyped women or spoke of them in derogatory or negative ways. When he used them as examples, it was in positive ways, using illustrations from their everyday life to teach spiritual truths. For example, the poor widow who gave two small copper coins, or the woman who had searched for her ten lost coins until she found them. In fact, in that example there, yeah, the woman with the ten coins. Jesus uses her as an example of how God himself rejoices over one sinner who repents. So these are just a couple. I mean, many, many of these examples could come to mind here. But these are just a couple of examples of the positive use of women in the Lord's teaching. He never sentimentalized women or motherhood either. I mean, you don't want to go to the other extreme, and uh, he didn't. For him, a woman's greatest value is not determined by her domestic, maternal, or sexual functions, but by her relationship to God. An example of this is the occasion when Jesus was going through the crowd, and a woman shouted out, Blessed is your mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Jesus replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. For Jesus, the most important thing about any woman was her response to the gospel, which is equally true about anyone, male or female. That's the important thing, how they respond to Christ. One last area here. After the resurrection... Jesus first appeared to women. Now, we might not think that's real significant, but they were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And in first century Judaism, women had no place as a witness. They did not place hardly any confidence in the the trustworthiness of a woman as a witness. But Jesus saw to it that they were the first ones to witness his resurrection and they were to go and tell the disciples. So he was affirming the trustworthiness of women and their equal dignity as persons made in the image of God, again, breaking down barriers of discrimination. So in all these ways and many, many more, Jesus was setting a pattern that should forever challenge all cultures that would seek to treat women in any kind of a second-class manner, second-class citizens. Jesus was breaking that down. He honored and valued men and women equally. And his words, Christ's words, and life have challenged the world in relationship to the status of women ever since the time that he walked the earth. He demonstrated their dignity equality, and worth constantly in his teaching and interaction. Yet, it's one of the sad truths concerning Christianity that must be acknowledged as we look over church history 
that some people who profess to follow Christ have fallen far short of the standard Jesus set in showing the worth and dignity of women. It's just the reality. If you read church history, you see that coming up over and over again. And we have to acknowledge that and make sure that we go by Christ's standard, not our culture, not anything that comes from selfishness, but what comes from Christ and the gospel. So, Lord willing, we'll get into the actual teaching in First Timothy next time. Uh, but I thought it would be good just to put a little background uh, before we get in again. You cannot just take a verse by itself. You have to see the broader, bigger biblical context, and especially in this situation of the New Testament church, Christ's relationship to women. So, again, next time we'll go back to First Timothy and try to get a better understanding of what is really being taught concerning women in the church. There's no question that these are difficult verses, uh, and we want to take our time and really try to understand uh, and do do a uh, exhaustive enough study on it that we do justice to the verses and not just take them isolated by themselves. Well, let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we think here of the amazing way that Jesus interacted with people, um, thinking here particularly this morning of his interaction with women, we pray, Father, that you'd help us to care about people as, as Christ did and have the kind of relationships that... Uh, bring glory to you and are helpful and not hurtful. Help us as a church and as individuals and our family and out in our culture to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.